37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Pixelated Paranormal. This will be episode 291. I, of course, am Sean, and I am still really bummed out about Paul Rubens passing away. And on that note, with me, as always, is Preston. Preston, buddy, how are you? What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins, you crocodiles and crocodingos, you skeletors and skeletons, witchers and witches, and occultists and occultist wannabes i'm good got back from a <laughs> birthday vacation with the wife took her to uh, kentucky fuck rob and uh then went to you did uh, what to rob no you know, rob was bitching that we didn't stop by and <laughs> tell him hi or whatever because we drove like as we're going through kentucky to get to tennessee we were, went through like this little tip and uh, as i'm seeing the road signs it's like you know, Hopkinsville, and then I'm like, you know, Hendersonville. I'm like, oh, shit, I think this is where Rob's at. And then I was texting you guys, and he was like, this motherfucker, this motherfucker. Uh, calm yourself down, Daddy <laughs> Rob. And uh, yep, so, yeah, exactly, we man. went to uh, Ruby uh, Ruby Falls Lookout Point and then went on to North Carolina to Asheville to see Queens of the Stone Age. And uh, it was it was a good time. It was refreshing because uh, our work schedules don't line up uh, our days off. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of sometimes we don't get to see each other very much. And uh, it's just good to be stuck on a road with the person that you love for seven, eight hours and be able just to talk yeah. and bullshit. Uh, there's a... Um, a guy on YouTube that makes these little videos where he splices in Alex Jones over Warhammer videos, like little you know images or whatever, and he's got this one of the Nurgle, and Alex Jones is like, I created cancer, I created hepatitis, and the guy that's interviewing me is like, oh, that's a bad one. And so I was, you know, I was like making her laugh, and so I'm playing these dumb videos in the car, so we'd get out and we'd go somewhere, and I would just turn to her and be like, I created gingivitis. And she'd be like, ooh, that's a bad one. <laughs> so that's kind of our Shit. new schni- you know, new <laughs> stick that we do to each other. So Hell yeah, man. Very yeah. nice. Well, I'm glad you guys had a pretty good trip, dude. It sounds like it was really awesome. Oh, shit. We got somebody watching on kick. Uh, Side Wilson 17. Ooh. What's up, buddy? Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. I, I didn't, well, I, I want to point out that a, uh, kick was a thing for us so <laughs> it is now baby yeah, yeah rumble's official. been kind of popping off as well dude so that's pretty fantastic um i wanted to point out that like six weeks ago i was complaining because i got stung by a black wasp and then um you really oh, yeah. had to outdo yourself and yeah. just get completely obliterated so you want to care to share that story real quick or yeah. stories so you know we live on five acres six acres and i have one of those big you know, 72 inch zero turn point radius mowers and the fucking deck belt went out. And so, so and it's a bad time. It's in the middle of summer and everybody's lawn mowers and lawn equipment's going to shit. So they're like, you know, it's going to uh-huh. be a minute. We'll pick it up. And then, you know, one minute turned it into like three weeks later. So, I mean, 
It's really like uh, the African grasslands on my property. Like I got seven foot tall like grass, and I, I, when we were out of town, <laughs> they deliver the mower back. So I'm like, you know, over the weekend I'm still off. Like I'm gonna get this shit mowed, and uh, Sunday morning, zipping down and getting the grass mowed. And as I'm coming back around, you know, I dodged five baby turtles. I have a thing for turtles in my heart. And so I'm just mm-hmm. like, nope, I'm not killing these guys. Like, I even stopped the fucking mower, picked these little turtles up and put them into safety. I might have clipped a baby possum. I don't know. I don't really care because mm. fuck possums anyways. They carry disease, little bastards. They and, don't. Uh, That's the thing, though. They don't carry disease. They I, can't even get rabies. Their bodies are basically evolved where they can't actually carry and spread rabies i feel i feel like they're like uh you know the koalas of the united states like they might have like chlamydia or something and it's just not well known (laughs) anyways there's something going on the point that i'm getting at what i'm trying to say is i've i've been trying to be mother nature's friend here okay Uh uh-huh and zipping back and forth and uh, you can see kind of like as i'm getting closer to the next spot that i need to mow across there are some little buzzy buzz going around. I'm thinking like, I don't know, you know, maybe like an animal died in a little hole. They're just flies. No, they were <laughs> fucking hornets. And before yeah. I know it, I got stung like twice on the side of my face. Uh, I got stung on the back of my arm, got stuck on my hand on the left side of my body, mind you, because my right side, I crippled myself last year. So like mother nature's like, no, fuck this guy. And, uh, so that, that wiped that wiped me out. And, then my daughter, she's getting ready to put the ducks up. And then there's like a giant fucking bull snake in the, like the duck pen, big old four foot black and white snake trying to like, you know, bite my head off as I'm trying to, you know, save these duck eggs and the ducks. Two days later, my cousin calls me cause you know, we're, he's got some, his aunt, I helped take care of the house and, uh, yeah, fucking more hornets, and they sting me again. So, like, I don't know, Mother Na- there's a conspiracy that Ma- Mother Nature is out to get me. Like, I, I just, like, keep getting stung by hornets, and I'm just like, you know what, fuck, I'm over life. That's what I'm trying to say. Yep. I'm over it. Yeah, I think the conspiracy here, Lazarus, and I figured it out, dude. You killed a baby possum, and Mother Nature's just like, well, here's your dose of karma, and yeah. you got a momentary stroke <laughs> on your left but side I, from but hornet sting, But man. I saved four baby turtles does that not outweigh the the baby possum four teenage mutant ninja turtles i saved (laughs) well it's like uh, in egypt you know you got to weigh your heart against the feather of like what ma'at or whatever so So you're saying mother nature likes likes possums over turtles like i could have just clipped the baby turtles mother nature would have been like fuck it fuck them turtles nobody gives a shit i mean they made those into like the only marsupials on the uh, North American continent. They can eat ticks and fleas. They can get bit by rabid raccoons. They're immune to rabies. I think karma has a little more uh, weight in a, a possum than a couple baby turtles, man. You know, it might be five turtles to one possum. Ugh. I don't know. I don't make the rules, pal. I just, you know, yeah. swerve whenever I see a possum in the road. Well, you know, I got stung like 10 times. But I'm alive. Yeah, and if, those fucking well, those hornet sting, man, those hornet stings fucking hurt. Like the side yeah, of my dude. face got yeah. like I looked like uh, you know Will Smith off of what was that movie uh, when he got uh, uh, Hitch or whatever. <laughs> I looked like Elephant Man. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> you did. Yeah, that's rough, dude. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Um, our front porch is being infested by wasps right now, so um, I made a really cool wasp killer that has not worked yet, but basically took like a 20-ounce bottle, uh, you cut the top off right where it starts to kind of, you know, curve up. You turn it over and make that into a funnel. You tape it together and fill it with like uh, dish soap and sugar water and a little bit of uh, vinegar. And the wasp is supposed to go down into that hole and then get stuck and knock it out and drown. And so far, I think I've caught a fly. So there you go. We'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I'm out there like a dollar store ghostbuster trying to shoot those things with a jug of home defense and just spray them out of the air while Shayla just watches me and laughs. You know, they make uh, those uh, salt guns, but mm-hmm. instead of like the, mm-hmm. the pump action rifle, they make a uh, Dirty Harry style revolver that uses CO2 cartridge. <laughs> And uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. I've been told that they work pretty well, so maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna give huh. me one of those and carry it with me while I'm on the lawnmower, and then like the hornets start attacking. And here's the <laughs> other thing too. So like I got on this tangent because I was pissed that I got stung so many times, and like so I started looking up all all the facts about like hornets and stuff. Yeah, they they are the only insect. If you think about like wasp, honeybees, spiders, whatever it is. They actually, hornets have a the ability to remember specific human faces. So let's say you and I mm-hmm. are outside and you piss the hornets off and then you yeah. run away. And then, you know, I'm in the backyard minding my own business and the hornets are like, not going to fuck with them. And then you come back around the corner, <laughs> they will avoid me altogether and be like, no, that fucking paint the town yeah. red on that guy. And I, so I, always find, I, I find that interesting that uh, they have the ability for facial recognition and they hold a, they hold they hold grudges, you know. Yeah, they're um, interesting little creatures for sure. I know I've got a nest out by the Bradford pear tree, which is where I got stung six weeks ago. And then um, two or three around the sides of the house. So I got to get out there and get that shit taken care of. And we have great big box bushes like six or eight of them coming up the walkway to the front porch. And I found out the bastards are in those bushes as well. So I may mm. just have to take a blowtorch to the entire fucking front yard. Yeah. You know, you got to do what you got to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Be like, be well, like the we guy see- off uh, Apocalypse Now. I love the smell of napalm in the morning and then, you know, burn down <laughs> half your neighborhood. But you got them. Yeah. That's all that counts, you know? That's true, yeah. Yeah, no, I won't futz with any uh, napalm right now because it's 110 degrees in Wichita, Kansas, and I think if I sneeze wrong, I'm going to start a fucking brush fire, so we're not going to do that. Hey, uh, Lazarus says rubbing alcohol kills on contact, just saying. Ooh, all right, well, might get a little spray bottle of that then. Hell yeah. Um, We've successfully talked about our woes and adventures for 12 minutes, buddy. Um, Again, I think this is going to be a long one, so strap in and get comfy. Um, before we get into the news, Preston bought a book or a series of books while they were on their road trip. Well, I, I did. This is this is not from the book that I bought on on, on the road trip. This is from a book that oh, it's I not. bought months ago. Uh, it's oh. uh, a collection <laughs> of uh, of stories and paranormal events, and uh, it, it it's always fascinating me. So you have dinosaurs, time slips, you know, bee mm-hmm. poop. Uh, all all sorts of fecal matters that matter, uh, yeah. and so what else am I going to do on a twenty seven hour whatever car ride? Right, I'm going <laughs> to hit it hard, Sleep. baby. But uh-huh. uh, you know what? I, what I have found is when you visit 
caves like uh, Mammoth Cave. Uh, we went to um, Ruby Falls, and in the gift shop, you know, they have like their section of books. And for whatever reason, when you go to a, a, a fucking cave gift shop, uh, whatever mm-hmm. state it is in, they will have a section of Haunted America books. So I, I picked up for future shows Haunted Tennessee and Haunted South. Okay, so. gotcha. So I misunderstood thinking that this is from a book that you picked up. But nonetheless, this episode is going to be kind of like, you know, the old school stuff we did when we put out an episode with really no main topic and just shoehorn a bunch of weird shit into one episode. But what's fun is the majority of the stories have to do with color. So certain stories are color-coded or grouped together in like reds or blues or greens. So it's really freaking fun. I'm super stoked about this. But first of all, um, let me just touch on this real quick. Mammoth Cave. Fucking wild, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. When you guys went down there, was it pretty well like paved? Like you could drive a, like a fucking Ford Focus through it now? No, 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 no. We 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 did we drove past Mammoth Cave, and oh, then okay. uh, we uh, as we were, we saw like this road sign that says the Lost Sea Adventure, and the wife is like, "What the fuck is that?" I'm like, "I don't know. Let's let's go." And she's like, "No, let, we we have places." I'm like, "No, we are on a fucking road trip adventure." <laughs> I saw your eyes light up. You fucking yeah. you know swerve that wheel this way and let's go. And so we pulled up, and. It is a cave system with North America's largest underground lake. And oh, so you, go, okay. you, you you explore this cave. You get to see where uh, this Indian chief held, like, meetings. Um, so they would, uh, like, hide from the settlers and stuff, and they would go down there and they would have meetings. It's, like, three football fields long. They had a uh, whiskey bar in there, and the atmosphere of the cave changes and so they would they would drink like whiskey and moonshine, and then they would exit the cave. And they by the time they got like halfway up the ladder, the atmosphere would change. And so you know, ten whiskey shots later, they're like drunk as shit, fall off the ladder, break a leg. So then they had to <laughs> shut down the the bar. And then they were using it uh, during the Cold War for possible nuclear attacks. So they they would put like. Um, Oh, like crackers and waters. They had like storage facilities there. And then as they're there, that all kind of went away. They're like, let's explore this cave some more. So 300 feet down in, all of a sudden you get to this giant, this giant lake. So they had to, they had to take these boats down piece by piece and then weld them together. So you get on this boat that is like rocking back and forth that could capsize at any moment. It's, it, it's fucking oh, wow. scary. It's it's petrifying, right? So he's like, oh, you know, <laughs> the water's like 10 feet deep. And he turns on this little electric motor and you're going like boop, 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 like slow as shit. And you get out there and you get out there. And the whole entire time you look down, the water is so clear. You can see the bottom of the cave floor. Boats rocking back and forth, boop, 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 boop. And you're just like, dude, I'm, I'm going to fall in this like 30 degree water at any moment. <laughs> and then he's like, he stops. And you're just sitting there slowly going like this, right? You're just kind of spinning. And he's like, all right, how deep do you think the water is now? I don't know, 10 feet, because it looks the fucking same from what is up, you know, what was up there. And he's like, <laughs> we're 75 feet deep right now. And I'm thinking what? like, 
if this thing capsizes, we're drowning. Like, you fucking, mm-hmm. and he's like, it gets even deeper out there. But we don't go that far. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, take the boat back to the fucking fake shore <laughs> now. Like, daddy ain't, yeah. I, I can I can swim barely. Like, this is not like the Titanic yeah. where, like, Jeffrey's going to be like, oh, just go on, Jack. Life goes on. <laughs> we don't need to, we don't need to redo that scene. Yeah, not to mention it's 75 feet deep. I imagine that's where the fucking cave squid lives, and fuck that noise. I, You never know. That's where my mind went. I'm like, what the fuck is out here? Because then they have less, less lights in the back of the cave, so the water starts to get darker and darker, and you're just like, nope. if he says it's nope. deeper and it's darker, like what's what's in the depths of this watery hell? I don't want to know. Yeah. I just can't, you ever can see go back the old to horror now? movie? <laughs> you ever see the old horror movie uh, The Descent? That's what's in the caves. Yes. And forget that yeah. noise, dude. No way. Yeah. No. I love caves as much as I'm terrified by them. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into the news, shall we, Presto? Researchers and monster hunters alike are gathering in the UK's Scottish Highlands this weekend to look for the eternally elusive Loch Ness Monster. This will be the Fake biggest news. search for the legendary... <laughs> This will be the biggest search for the legendary creature in more than 50 years. Somewhere beneath the shimmering surface of Loch Ness lies Nessie, the legendary sea beast whose reputation spans 1,500 years. Or at least that's what monster hunters say about Nessie. Anyway, the Loch Ness Center and the research group Loch Ness Exploration are asking all aspiring monster hunters to join the biggest search for the elusive beast since 1972. Our purpose is to observe, record, and study the natural behavior of the lock and the phenomenon that may be more challenging to explain. If you believe that the Loch Ness Monster exists, then we invite you to join the search, and we equally invite you to support the study of Locke and the natural behavior of the elements that may be the root cause of the strange reports from Loch Ness. So investigators are breaking out all sorts of technology, including surveying equipment for the Loch Ness Center. Drones with infrared cameras will fly over the lake with hydrophones, and those will also be used to detect Loch Ness Nessie-like calls from under the water. Kaka, tuki-tuki. <laughs> right. Well, we look forward to finding out what kind of, you know, evidence they might come across for this, Nothing. Uh, this They're not going to find shit. Fuck the Loch Ness. <laughs> Look, aliens, 90% sure. Bigfoot, 60% sure. Loch Ness, go fuck yourself. It's all fake news. <laughs> Fair. Uh, well, for a second news story, in Shirley, Massachusetts, a giant 20-pound chunk of ice fell from the sky and hit a house in Massachusetts, damaging the roof of the home. Jeff Ilg says he and his wife, Amelia Rainville, suspect the ice may have fallen from an airplane traveling to Boston Logan International Airport. Neither the couple nor their two children were hurt when the ice chunk hit the ceiling, but they estimated it to be 15 to 20 pounds. It hit the roof on Sunday night. They said, we heard an explosion, basically. The loudest pop bang I've ever heard. They heard debris then rolling down the roof onto the lower roof, and that's when they initially thought the house had been hit by lightning. The Federal Aviation Administration is currently investigating. The couple ran upstairs to check on their children, who were sound asleep despite the noise. They then ran outside the house to see what happened, 
and said they saw giant chunks of ice in one large partial block and other debris scattered around the backyard and on the roof. They said they had no idea what it was, but they grabbed a flashlight and started looking for damage, but then they couldn't see any at first. His wife called the police, and then he spotted a hole in the roof. He ran up to the attic to see what was in the hole, and sure enough, it was big. The impact on the outside is about an 18-inch hole, nearly two feet across in diameter. But the damage to the inside was bigger. All in all, Ilg and his wife gathered around 10 pounds of ice, and they said there was plenty more to collect melting in the yard. Mm. Well, keep your eyes on the skies, because rounding out the news on tonight's episode... Apparently, back on August 10th, Russia launched its first moon landing spacecraft in the last 47 years in a bid to be the first nation to make a soft landing on the lunar south pole in a quest to discover if the region had indeed frozen pockets of ice water. The Luna 25 probe launched from the Vostokny Cosmodrome in Russia's Amur Oblast um, set the vehicle on a swift trip to the moon. Luna 25's trajectory allowed it to surpass India's Chandrayaan number three, which also is on the way, launched around July. That's right, y'all. Amidst all the UFO and UAP disclosure talk, we've also apparently been amidst another international space race. Now, the spacecraft was meant to complete Russia's first lunar landing mission in the last 47 years, since the country's last lunar landing, known as Luna 24, which landed on the surface of the moon back on August 18th of 1976. But unfortunately, Russia's first lunar mission in decades had ended in failure, because Russia's space agency Roscosmos said it lost touch with Luna 25 back on Saturday the 20th around 2.53 p.m. in Moscow time. The space agency said the measures taken on August 19th and 20th to search for the device and get in contact did not yield any results. According to the preliminary analysis, Luna 25 switched to a off-design orbit before the collision. It's not immediately clear what caused the crash. But the news comes a day after the spacecraft reported an emergency situation and was trying to enter a pre-landing orbit. Anyway, during the operation, an emergency situation occurred on board the automatic station, which didn't allow the maneuver to be performed with the specified parameters. That being said, of course, a specially formed commission will be investigating the reason for the loss of Luna 25 and to see just what the heck happened to the vessel and just where the hell it is now. Because, you know, you think a 20-pound block of ice hitting your roof is going to be crazy. Just imagine yeah. a fucking, you know, lunar module just landing in your backyard. You know, speaking of uh, Russia in, in space, so there, there's this, they, they talk about how, like, okay, so you go back, like, 3,000 years, 2,000 years, 1,000 years, doesn't really matter, right? Like, uh -huh. when Nero got his throat slit, that last breath that he breathed out, that those particles are still around, or, you know, anytime that Lincoln farted, right, those particles are still around, so you... you even to this day, we're breathing in and out these different particles. And the one thing that we have in common with throughout everybody in history is that we basically have all or will die together. Everybody dies on Earth, right? So th those, those, those particles are together. They die together. 
but Russia was sending, when they were sending missions to outer space, they mm-hmm. loaded up three cosmonauts into a space capsule, and they got it in to, you know, past the Van Allen belt, and then they're out there, and something happened, and it depressurized, and three Russian cosmonauts basically just blood splattered, and they were, that. Those, that's oh. the only time in human history where those, those, they have not died with anybody else, like, they're, they've, they're all on their own like that's that's a real weird record if you think about it like what record <laughs> did you hold jerry well everybody else has died together on earth but i fucking died in outer space i vaporized myself <laughs> right god like, like oh. that submarine dude down there by the titanic wreckage. Yeah. Ugh, everyone just kind of just bloop well let's get into the main crux of the episode shall we bud With all the UFO talk happening lately and the fact that Russia's back in a lunar landing game with the recent obsession with the moon's south pole and our ongoing obsession with exploring outer space and the furthest depths of, you know, as far as the eye can see, we gotta think it's important to stop for a second and look back on this big old rock that we live on right now and ask ourselves, have we really explored all there is to explore about this big blue planet? Have we learned all there is to learn already? And like Pocahontas said, can we truly paint with all the colors of the wind? For this episode, Preston and I were talking about the early days of pixelated paranormal, where we used to just shoehorn a bunch of weird shit into one episode because we didn't do our homework, and we didn't really have theme most times. Well, we kind of missed those days, so what Preston's done for this episode is compiled a giant truckload of strange stories into one gigantic episode, just like the good old days. But because we now thrive on structure, and because Presto and I are both artists, and because we're also both colorblind, we thought to ourselves, why not also color code the hell out of this weird episode we're going to talk about? So join us on this special episode as we take a look at some of the lesser-known bizarre occurrences that we've come across as a species and enjoy this carefully color-coordinated cacophony of the peculiar. And to kick things off, let's forget about the southern pole region of the moon and just travel back to the south pole of our very own Earth. Oh, yes. The peculiarities of our world. So picture this. A group of early explorers amidst an expedition to explore the vast frozen horizon of the south pole Stark white snow blankets the land, nothing but pure white powder as far as the eye can see, like a fucking mountain of cocaine. And That's until the explorers catch a glimpse of a patch of bizarre crimson red snow staining the pristine whiteness of Antarctica, like a clumsy painter splattering red paint all over the blank canvas, like a rebellious teenager crashing a formal dinner party fucking shouldn't be there but there it is <laughs> was there was there a murder amongst the vast unexplored snowy region perhaps a violent slaughter of an earlier unsuspecting expedition ripped apart by an arctic behemoth a polar bear god knows what <laughs> i mean i think about crimson red and snow and immediately mind get my mind goes to uh, john carpenter's the thing yeah well that's not what happened here buddy <laughs> Initially, when the first explorers reached the fringes of the s- southern pole regions, the patches of red snow along the continent's edge remained a minor mystery. 
But fear not, dear listeners, for the mystery was eventually unraveled, and it turned out that the Antarctic wilderness had been stained by penguin droppings. That's <laughs> right. The penguins that inhabit this specific region had uh, pooped, and that was colored red by the stealth shellfish these birds had consumed as part of their native diet. So nothing strange about the redness anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, it kind of reminds me of the little flamingos and how they get their pink color from the brine and the shrimp and algae they eat um, containing uh, carrot, carrot, is it carotenoids? Um, yeah, but in this right. case, you Why know, not? yeah, we're not talking about their feathers being pink. Of course, we're talking about these penguins poopy being red. So that's going to be our first color today, folks, is red. Yeah. So hold your hats because we're just getting started and the weird weirdness doesn't stop with just penguin poop. In the province of Marsaretta, Italy, something extraordinary unfolded one strange August evening. Back in 1897, half an hour before sunset, the sky was engulfed with an immense number of small, blood-colored clouds. Kind of like the end-of-day shit, like the sky is about to cry blood. Maybe. As if all the clouds turning blood red wasn't enough, about an hour later, a cyclone storm erupted and the clouds all burst unleashing a myriad of tiny blood-red blobs that rained down on the grounds and the people below. Was this indeed the end of days? Was the sky indeed weeping blood? Was it dogs and cats and mass hysterios, you know, <laughs> about to happen? Well... Are you a god? Not really. No. <laughs> See, the strange red storm released a, a torrent of tiny seeds into the air, the, these seeds cascaded down upon the town and countryside, blanketing the ground in weird red puddles and the depths of approximately a half an inch. The following day, the entire scientific community of Marcietta embarked on a quest to unravel this perplexing phenomenon. Among them was Professor Cardinal, a renowned Italian naturalist who shared his insights. He revealed that the seeds belonged to a plant in the genius Circeal, more commonly known as the Judas tree. Mm. What made this discovery even more fascinating was that this peculiar order of leguminosae, I don't know, fuck it. We're not Yeah, we're no, I think pronounce. I think you fucking got it the first time, bud. That's yeah, good. I nailed that one. That could only be found in Central Africa or the Antilles. Upon closer examination, it was revealed that a significant number of these seeds were already in the initial stages of germination. The events <laughs> that unfolded in Marcietta left the scientific community astounded and intrigued. It was a spectacle that defied explanation, captivating the minds of those who thought to understand the mysteries of the natural world. It's kind of like a reverse War of the Worlds. Where, like, you're being attacked by these giant globulars, and instead of being, you know, aliens, it's just plants. It's just fucking plant seeds that are kind of slightly gooey because they're yeah. germinating. Still, nonetheless, dude, you got to think back in the early, early 1900s. Well, I guess this is the, the late 1800s. Like, that's got to be terrifying, dude, because all you know is the Bible, and all you know is the rapture, and all of a sudden the sky turns blood red, and these big old chunks are falling down on you. Mm, yeah. It's got to be terrifying. And it kind of reminds me of the old Kentucky meat shower, speaking of red rain. Now, I can't recall if we talked about this on an episode or not, so I kind of just uh, summarized. We did. I thought we did, but then you asked me, and I'm going back through all the show notes, and yeah, I'm trying to find. Yeah. 
I, I think it's one that we shoehorned in somewhere, so it wasn't like a main topic. <laughs> Could have been. And I was just like, fuck it, dude. I don't know where I don't know where this is at, you know. Yeah. I thought it was around the Domson blobs and uh, that weird black gooey rain that was on Unsolved Mysteries, but I couldn't find it in that episode either. But I mean, I was just looking at show notes as well. So anyway, just a few years before this weird Judas tree rain, back on March 3rd of 1876, a farmer's wife, Mrs. Couch, was out making soap on her front porch when she reported seeing a piece of meat fall from the sky where she said she was about 40 steps away from the blob when it hit the front yard. Then suddenly, additional chunks were falling from the sky, slapping the ground. Miss Couch and her husband believed this might have been a sign from God. Most of the pieces of meat were approximately 2 inches by 2 inches, but there were some that were 4 inches by 4 inches. The meat appeared to be beef, but according to the first reports in Scientific American, Two men who tasted it judged that it might have been more of a lamb or a deer, which is also fucking gross. All right, Jerry, we got to get to the bottom of this. Put that meat <laughs> yeah, in your mouth, yeah. buddy. Tell me what you taste. I don't know. I think it tastes like uh, deer. Hold the fucking phone. Let me take a big chunk. I think it tastes like lamb. I'm glad science has come a long ways in the, you know, yeah. since the days of, I don't know, Jerry, put it in your mouth. What do you think it is? Yeah. Uh, writing in the sanitarian, Leopold Brandes identified the substance as Gnostic, a type of cyanobacteria. Brandes gave the meat samples to Newark Scientific Association for further analysis, leading a letter from Dr. Alan McLean Hamilton appearing in the medical record and stating that the meat had been identified as lung tissue from either a horse or possibly a human infant. The structure of the organ in these two cases has been almost identified, said the journal. The composition of the sample was backed up by further analysis, with two samples of the meat being identified indeed as lung tissue, but three other samples were muscle tissue and then two others being cartilage. So you got to ask yourself, what exactly was it? Was it just a classic case of a flying saucer flying across and just dumping out the people that it's ground up? I don't know. But Brandy's Gnostic theory relied on the fact that Gnostic expands into a clear jelly-like mass when rain falls upon it, often giving the sense that it was falling from the sky as a rain in itself. Charles Fort also noted in his book, The Book of the Damned, that there had been no rain that day. Anyway, locals favored the explanation that the meat was vomited up by buzzards whose, as their custom, seeing as one of their companions disgorged himself, was to immediately follow suit. So you can imagine, you know, Mrs. Couch is out there making porch soap, and all of a sudden a flock of buzzards go by, and one of them's just like, huh? huh? And then the rest of them are like, all right, let's unload. And all of a sudden they all just start puking their guts out. If you're going to spew, spew this. <laughs> right. Oh... Anyway, Dr. Louis D. Kassenbein presented this theory in the contemporaneous Louisville Medical News as the best explanation for what it might have been. Vultures vomit as part of making a quick escape as a defense mechanism when being threatened. Fort went on to explain the flattened, dry appearance of the meat chunks were a result of pressure and noted that nine or ten days later on March 12, 1876... Corpuscles with vegetable appearances fell over London. 
So could it have been another additional meat shower, Preston, or maybe just another Judas tree hurricane? Mm. Uh, Lazarus uh, brings up a good point that uh, that would still require the buzzers to eat horse and or baby lungs. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. I think it was UFOs with a meat grinder. There you go. All right. In the library. Let's travel back a little further than your vulture vomit incident and go back to a time in dusty Baghdad on the night of uh, May 20th, 1857. As darkness fell upon the city, panic seized its inhabitants when a red and lurid gloom took over the horizon. It was a little after midnight, and if things couldn't get any stranger, a dense shower of sand began to rain upon the city. Sand from the sky, my friends. It's like a scene from a surreal movie. (laughs) Yeah. No explanation on why the clouds were red, but they pissed out sand. So, you know. (laughs) A sandstorm, perhaps? Yeah, maybe the clouds were like, uh, you know, developing a kidney stone, and uh, they just, you know, had to piss (laughs) it out. That's how we got the sand. Going to go ahead and make that scientific deduction right now. Yeah, seems check out to me yeah and let's take a, a leap into the little town of stroud in gloucestershire imagine going about your business when suddenly thumb-sized rose-colored frogs start raining from above umbrellas and <laughs> pavements became their bouncy playground much to the surprise of townspeople according That's to a trusty yeah, according to a trusty article in the Daily Mirror, I, I don't know that the Daily Mirror is actually that trusty. Even back in 1987, <laughs> you know, they're probably not not the best. But anyways, the towns of Gloucestershire uh, experienced not one but two occasions of amphibian pr- uh, precipitation. Within a mere two weeks, pictured this, an unnamed woman armed with an umbrella witnessed the spectacle firsthand. She reported that tiny rose-colored frogs were raining down from the sky, bouncing off umbrellas like they were auditioning for a froggy circus soleil. These little hoppers then hopped off into their hundreds, seeking refuge in nearby streams and gardens. Naturally, this extraordinary meteorological event warranted investigation. The Gloucestershire Trust of Natural Conservatory, or the GTNC, sent their finest naturalist, Ian Darling, to crack the case. Darling described the frogs as no more than a few grams in weight, and he believed that they were albino versions of the common frog, hence the peculiar pink hue. But how on earth did they end up raining from the sky? Ah, that's where the plot thickens, my friends. Some suggested that these pink frogs hitched a ride on a Saharan sand, which uh, had made its way to England via rain showers. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to believe that these little amphibians survived a 20-hour journey at 60 miles per hour in atmospheric water drops. It's like a froggy version of the Fast and the Furious. (laughs) I mean, if the only way a gram or two apiece... I don't have a hard time believing they could just whirl around in the wind because their mass and volume is so small. I mean, even if they hit each other and, like, you know, this, like, bouncing off each other, I don't think they could hurt each other that much. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Yeah. Another uh, idea involved uh, large hailstones, which melted upon impact, revealing the uh, uh, frogs that were in the moist soil. So it actually didn't rain Mm. the frogs. 
it just beat the shit out of the ground and they like popped up <laughs> out of the soil like surprise motherfucker here i am yeah yeah could have been yeah despite the uh, flurry of explanations uh none fully satisfied the startled inhabitants of the uh, these uh clots world towns but here's the kicker, my friends. This isn't the first time frogs have fallen from the sky. London newspapers reported a similar incident in 1921 where numerous amounts of little frogs appeared during a thunderstorm. And let's not forget Mrs. S. Moody's unforgettable encounter during a Royal Navy display in 1954. She and her family sought shelter from the rains under the trees only to be bombarded by froggy downpour. Three instances of red things falling <laughs> from the skies. It's like a cosmic game of connect the dots, forming a colorful portrait of our world. Aliens, fairies, miracles, monsters. They all seem to have a knack for making their presence known from Alaska to Argentina and from Britain to Japan. It's a global phenomenon, motherfuckers. <laughs> well, like you just said, we had a little bit of a repeating theme here, the color red. So how about we switch things up a little bit and change the color on me, Preston? Yeah. So let's continue our exploration of this th strange planet. We can recognize these phenomenons by continent, date, and how we have been by color. Mm -hmm. Imagine listing the phenomenon of each country, uh, dating and placing them and feeding the information to a computer. Who, who knows? It might confirm that ghosts appear near running water or that strange things tend to happen on Wednesdays. But we can start uh, by concentrating on monsters, then ghosts, and finally explore the possible connections between the two. Or perhaps we can take an unorthodox approach and just how, how we've been doing, categorize them by color. So let's choose another color. How about yellow? Let's do it. Yellow rain fell in Afghanistan during the Soviet occupation in the 1980s. So let's shed some light on the yellow rain. Or a rather sticky situation from a 1980 uh, from 1981 known as the Yellow Rain Incident. Now hold on a second. And this political is it about to get X-rated? Are we gonna have to pull out some tarps? <laughs> uh, it, you know, golden shower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not not that type of golden shower though. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And this political drama, the United States Secretary of State Alexander Haig pointed fingers at the Soviet Union claiming that they were supplying T2 mitoxin to communist states in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The alleged purpose? To wage uh, counterinsurgency warfare. But here's where things get interesting. Refugees fleeing the conflict described a range of attacks with one peculiar detail, a sticky yellow liquid raining down from planes and helicopters. And just like that, yellow rain became the buzzword of the hour. The U.S. government went on to claim that these supposed chemical weapons had caused the death of over 10,000 people. Fuck. However, the Soviets vehemently denied these allegations. It wasn't us. It wasn't yellow. Why would we do these things? <laughs> and even yeah. the United Nations investigation failed to reach a conclusive verdict. So, enter a group of independent scientists who were given samples of the alleged chemical agent. Brace yourself, folks, because what they discovered was quite the buzzkill. That's right. Those samples turned out to be none other than honeybee shit. Yes, <laughs> you heard that right. Bee poop. It turns out the yellow rain was simply the results of mass defecation by bees after they had di digested <laughs> pollen grains. Who knew 
bees had such a colorful way of expressing themselves. Amazing. Yeah. Now, here's where uh, things get a bit sticky. Despite the scientific evidence conclusively proving that yellow rain was not a Soviet chemical or biological weapon, the U.S. government to this day has yet to retract its allegations. They argue that the issue remains unsolved. God damn communists. It's not B shit. I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. To add intrigue, many of the U.S. documents related to this incident remain classified, leaving us to wonder what other secrets might be hidden in the hive of information. <laughs> <laughs> So, dear <laughs> listeners, the Yellow Rain incident serves as a reminder that sometimes things aren't what they seem. Whether it's accusations of flying uh, like bees in a, a swarm or sticky situations that leave us scratching our heads, the truth can be as elusive as bees buzzing through a field of flowers. <laughs> Very nice. You paint yeah. quite the uh, beautiful picture there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of all this shit going on, and then bees are just sitting there, just, just dropping it, man. Just yep. yeah, dropping it yep. like it's hot. <laughs> well, like a good game of Uno, we're gonna change the color from yellow to green, because I couldn't help but think about the old story of the children of Vulpit. Now I know we did talk about this, but I, again, yeah. couldn't find the episode number. But as the story goes, back somewhere in the year of eleven fifty. Two children, a boy and a girl, were discovered by a group of harvest reapers that were out gathering produce out of the local fields in the small village of Vulpit. Now, supposedly, the two children were spotted crawling out of one of the pits that were meant for catching wolves that gave the village its name, because Vulpit actually translates into wolf pit. And while the sight of two kids crawling out of a wolf-catching pit isn't odd enough most startling of all was, the villagers said, was the two children had green skin and were also clad in garments of a strange color unrecognizable to the villagers and made of unknown materials. So the reapers approached the children and tried to speak to them, but they said the green kids seemed to speak some other kind of gibberish. So they gathered up the children and took them to the home of Sir Richards de Colney, who lived nearby. He took them in and cleaned them up, and though the colony offered the green children food, they refused to eat any of it. After a few days of this, the green children of Bullpit discovered while playing some green beans that were growing out in the colony's garden, and eagerly gobbled them up. Before long, they reportedly took to eating the food the villagers offered them as well, and began to lose the green tinge of their skin. Now, sadly, the little boy grew sick and died, but unlike her brother, the girl seemed to be flourishing under the villagers' care. Before long, she mastered the English language and took on the English name of Agnes Barr. And she told the people of Vulpit a strange story about her homeland. She said she and her brother had come from a place called St. Martin, but she wasn't sure how they ended up in Vulpit. On a certain day when we were feeding our father's flocks in the fields, we heard a great sound, such as we were accustomed to hearing now in St. Edmund's. We were hearing the bells chiming. And whilst listening to the sound in admiration, we became on a sudden entrance. And we found ourselves suddenly among you in the fields that you were reaping. 
Upon further questioning, she said that her country was Christian and had churches, but otherwise was quite different from England. The sun didn't rise upon the countrymen or the land as little was cheered by its beams. They were content with twilight, which meant among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country can be seen not in the far distance of ours, but divided by a clearly considerable river. So it sounds almost like these people lived out in the twilight, or, you know, kind of in the veil, so to speak, maybe. Well, anyway, no one ever seemed to manage to find out the secret land of St. Martin, and Agnes would then go on to live a very full life. But as time went by, many folks speculated just where the two green children of Volpit came from. But one specific explanation seems to be a potential answer. The two children may have actually just been two normal kids from a neighboring village that could have been poisoned with arsenic and left to die in one of the many wolf pits, which could then explain their green-toned skin due to high levels of poison, which could have also caused them to babble an unintelligible language. But another explanation could be that the children were the offspring of Flemish immigrants who were killed by King Stephen or King Henry II. Thus, villagers in Volpit took this gibberish that they might have been speaking could have actually been Dutch. Baga and their baga? green skin... <laughs> that's not their Dutch, green... that's gibberish. Kill them! <laughs> I heard Dutch and that ain't Dutch. <laughs> the green skin could have also been caused from chlorosis, which results from malnutrition from being left alone to their own devices looking for food which also could explain the green skin fading away as soon as they adjusted their diet to a better diet of vegetables and healthy grains. Well, speaking of green, how about uh, green-shaped UFOs hovering over weapons depots near Afghanistan on the night of July 28, 1989? Servicemen from two army units in that area witnessed its eerie glow. It's like a sci-fi movie come to life. But that wasn't the only <laughs> encounter in that area or during that year. From an article of the New York Times, October 1989, contrary to any doubts or suspicions, the Soviet press agency TASS emphatically stated today that they reported extraterrestrial visits to a southern Russia. It's not a joke, a hoax, or a sign of mental instability, or a ploy to attract curious tourists. The residents of Vort. Voronish City maintained that a lanky, three-eyed extraterrestrial being did indeed land in a <laughs> local park and take a leisurely stroll. This seemingly fas fascinating report published by TASS on Monday is, according to them, absolutely true. Lieutenant Sergei A. Matraviv of the Voronish D District Police Station Man, do you think I nailed that one? Eight out Close of ten. Close enough. Nine. We're going to allow enough. it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Of uh, the uh, district police station who witnessed the UFO landing on September 27th confirmed that it was not an optical illusion. Although he did not personally see the aliens, he witnessed the spaceship itself, a flying object that moved silently at high speeds and at low altitudes. Lieutenant Matiev admitted that the initial skepticism attributing the, to the sightings uh, to fatigue. However, he quickly realized that this is a day of age where anything is uh, possible. 
in a sensationalist manner uh, that has recently permitted tasks. The press agency provided additional details about the UFO landing in the city that's located approximately 300 miles south of Moscow. According to TASS and the reported and reported in the newspaper, Sovetska Kultura, uh, three school children named Vaisa Surin and Shinye Bolnovov and Yul f- fuck, I don't know, some Russian names, <laughs> were playing in a park uh, on the warm evening of September 27th. They witnessed a pink glow in the sky, followed by the appearance of a deep red ball approximately 10 yards in diameter. A crowd gathered, and they observed a hatch opening at the lower part of the ball, revealing a humanoid figure. The humanoid, standing at about nine feet tall, was uh, dressed fashionably in silvery overalls, bronze boots, and had a disc on its chest. The creature, accompanied by a companion and a robot, like, uh, was this like fucking Futurama or some shit? Like, uh, the robot was like (laughs) Bender, you know? Uh... Seemed to uh, try to communicate with them, creating a mysterious shining triangle. They act the they activated the robot with a touch. One of the children began to scream in terror, but the alien silenced and paralyzed them with his shining eyes. After a brief uh-huh. disappearance, the alien returned, and at this time, one of them had what appeared to be a two-foot-long tube resembling a gun. The alien pointed it at a 16-year-old boy, causing him to vanish. Holy fuck. Like... Dis- disappearing ray gun. That's, that's fucking wild. Yeah. We don't ever hear that in normal UFO stories. Goddamn Russians are getting all the good stuff. Anyways, <laughs> he reappeared once the aliens re-entered the ball. Vladimir Moiseev, uh, director of the regional health department, confirmed that despite reports of wi- ri- widespread fear in the city, None of the witnesses stopped medical assistance. However, he mentioned that plans w- were underway to examine the children. It remains unclear why this examination has not yet taken place after two weeks. Authorities and v- Vornoish uh, task editors and many readers treated the report seriously as a scientific phenomenon. Due to staffing shortages, no additional personnel were assigned to patrol the area, but troops were dispatched to if the extraterrestrial beings reappeared, according to the duty officer at the local Inferior Ministry Department. Vladimir, the task correspondent covering the case, expressed uh, offense at any suggestion that the story uh, should be treated lightly. He conducted interviews with numerous eyewitnesses and experts who examined the evidence and spoke to the children. And according to him, there were approximately three UFO landings between September 23rd and September 29th. And in a recent development not yet reported by TASS, Zhenrik M. Selvanov, the head of the geographic uh, geophysical laboratory, asked Leslie not to forget the blue... Uh, oh, somehow I, I mistyped something in there. Anyways, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, moving on. Let's not forget about the blue wonders of the world. A 13-year... I don't know why I did this myself. Like, I put in, like, all these, like, Italian names, Russian names, French... <laughs> like, <laughs> fuck me. I love it. I'm uh, so <laughs> A 13-year-old boy named Jean Bernard claimed to have seen the Virgin Mary herself in the village of Valenciennes near the uh, St. Etienne. Uh, France on July 19, 1888, 
for over a total of 19 times. Damn. She was adorned in a white dress with a blue cloak spangled with stars. And believe it or not, she or she encouraged him to kill a lizard. These apparitions were followed by four remarkable miracles. The chapel contains numerous ex votos serving as evidence of the multitude of graces granted during this time. In 1917, Jean-Auguste Bernard was ordained as a priest. He passed away on September 10, 1935 in uh, Barcart. His body was later uh, repropriated on November 1st, 1976 and laid to rest in a cemetery in some fucking French town that I'm not going to bother pronouncing. Fair. I like it. Um, yeah. We covered that Russian um, UFO encounter, I believe, back on episode 99. Um, it was the Russian Roswell, I think they also call it. But yeah, those, yeah. I remember the school but kids. It's it fucking started out, though, as a green ball over a weapons depot and mm -hmm, then, mm -hmm. you know, skyrocketed, so to speak. Yep, yep. I don't catch any blue. I don't catch the color. Well, I guess a blue cloak spangled with stars. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you fucking colorblind bastard. <sighs> hmm. Silver. Moving on. Jesus. Silver, of course, is the uh, color of UFO and flying saucers, but silver is also the color of the Murphy Burroughs Mud Monster, an eight-foot-tall creature who haunted Murfreesboro, Illinois, from 1972 to 1988. Two men encountered it around 1.30 a.m. one night as they were moving through the Russell Tree Line at the edge of a salvage yard filled with decaying cars and angled shadows. The creature had glowing red eyes, yellow teeth, and emitted a smell reminiscent of sewers <laughs> and skunks. Yeah, uh, we covered that topic back on episode 144, Cryptid Encounter number 13. And for all the juicy deets, you know, take a listen to that episode again. But it was a classic case of a young couple that were parked out on a desolate riverside, you know, getting cozy and locking into a romantic encounter, you might say, when suddenly they came face to face with a huge, wet, hairy, mud-slathered beast that oddly had silver-gray fur and a certain knack for disturbing teenage lovers amidst the act of lovemaking. And for about two harrowing weeks in the summer of 1973, the rural town of Murfreesboro, Illinois, became the epicenter of a terrifying series of encounters with a huge silver-haired beast, which would come to be known as the Murfreesboro Mud Monster. Mm. Now, to finish things off here, uh, we're going to kind of dilute away from colors and just get to some really, uh, really interesting stories here that you've kind of shoehorned in the back end of this episode. Yeah. Because like you said, that book kind of goes on to talk about how you can categorize things by color, but also by location and that kind of stuff. So yeah. anyway, take us home, buddy. We got a little ways to go here yet. Yeah, we, whew, we got, I really did myself in on this. There's a lot of talk. I'm not here. sure if anybody heard that, but that sounded, fuck me, a bunch of gunshots. I just saw the look on your face. Holy fuck, is it? I don't know. If, I'm sure that came across on the uh, the microphone. I don't know. Hold on a second, guys. Um, give me just a minute. I'm going to go take a peek and make sure everything's okay.
Yeah, I didn't hear Dick either. I think he's being a paranoid Pete. Can't trust those black-eyed children. None of those stories turn out good. Like vampires trying to get in. Well, everything seems to be okay at the house. Um, yeah. Also, for all you lucky viewers, you just realized I'm not wearing pants. Just a nice pair of blue briefs. <laughs> Oh yeah, they got to see in the, in the uh, got to see in, in your yeah. Uh, Lazarus said he didn't hear Dick, but it was probably those black-eyed kids trying to get in. <laughs> I want to do an episode about black-eyed kids because I have a very interesting explanation for what it could be. Yeah, oh, okay. working in the okay. working in the optical industry as we do, Preston. I talked to an eye doctor and got a very strange um, explanation for what it could be, but you know we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Well, from encountering the vision of the Virgin in a, in a Patagonian bedroom to facing the devil in an Irish pub or witnessing the great sea serpent of the North Atlantic, the world is filled with extraordinary experiences. Imagine giant wheels of phosphorus light spinning beneath the tranquil waters of the Persian Gulf or the ghost riders of the Mesopotamian desert. Fuck, we need to deep dive that one because that, that sounds like that's going to be a wild story. Did you say wild story. ghost pirates? Ghost Riders. Ghost Riders of the Mesopotamia. Yeah. Okay. I'll save that right yeah. now. <laughs> and uh I can't I can't remember what episode it was, but we even covered Christ's grave in Japan. We did, yeah. Uh you know, Jesus no Shiwe. Uh you know, all that holds its own mystique. Traveling across the Australian wilderness, one may come across planetary barcodes stretching for hundreds of miles. And who can forget the poltergeist haunted toilet of Dr. Barschnitz, a German dentist? <laughs> the world is a tapestry of wonders waiting to be explored. So let's, uh, let's deep dive this uh, talking toilet for a second. Mm-hmm. Visiting the dentist's office can be an unpleasant experience even during uh, routine visits. However, imagine the added discomfort of going to the restroom and sitting on the toilet only to have a disembodied voice beneath you shout, Move your behind! I can't see a thing! <laughs> such, a, such an occurrence would be truly overwhelming. If you were a patient of Dr. Carl Barschnitz, your root canal experience came with a few surprises. Dr. Barschnitz, a 60-year-old dentist, operated a small dental surgery in Neutralbling, Germany. Assisting him was a 17-year-old Claudia Udman. Uh, life at the office was uh, typically uneventful until one day, one spring day in 1981. During a dental procedure, one patient leaned over her dental chair to use the spittoon, only to be startled when the receptacle barked at her, commanding her to shut her mouth. Several days later, another patient found himself in the chair only to be ordered by the wash basin to open your mouth wider, idiot. <laughs> Soon after, the episode of the talking toilet unfolded. Once activated, this phantom assistant would not cease speaking. And to make matters worse, the voice, which referred to itself as Chopper, possessed an incredibly unpleasant personality. <laughs> Chopper, a male voice with a guttural uh, Bavarian accent, would incessantly interrupt phone calls 
hurl abuse at Dr. Barshnitz, uh, his patients, and even threaten physical violence against him and his wife. The voice seemed to emanate from plug holes, wash basins, electrical sockets, and virtually every corner of the surgery. No one knew where Chopper would appear next. Curiously, the only person spared from Chopper's wrath was Claudia. Chopper would speak to her in a friendly manner, engaging her in conversations as if they were old schoolmates holding a reunion. Understandably, the citizens of Nutribling soon decided to seek dental care elsewhere, and they preferred to avoid the loudmouth mascot that Dr. Barsonitz had unintentionally acquired. <laughs> By February 1983, the distraught dentist was compelled to file a harassment suit against the unknowingly entity. So how the fuck do you sue your toilet? <laughs> Goddamn. He even had his phone disconnected, but Chopper continued to use it. Dr. Barsonitz enlisted the help of police who were understandably perplexed by his demands to arrest a talking ghost. He also had the surgery thoroughly searched for electrical devices that could have been uh, used to create the voice, but no evidence was found. In desperation, he called upon Hans Bender, Germany's most renowned uh, paranormal investigator. Release me! Release me! Chopper moaned to Bender. Consequently, the small surgery was uh, inundated with spiritualist reporters and curious onlookers. Chopper even inspired a hip-hop song the fuck i don't i don't know what i don't know what one that was but whatever <laughs> the local uh, public prosecutor elmar fisher eventually concluded that uh releasing chopper would be a criminal matter rather than a paranormal one he firmly believed that dr barshnitz and claudia Udman were for some demented reason orchestrating what he referred to as a stupid practical joke in March, Fisher announced that Udman had been uh, employing voice projection to deceive people into thinking the surgery was haunted. Under interrogation, Claudia confessed her guilt, admitting that she had invented Chopper to alleviate the monotony of working um, and to gain uh, publicity. As a result, Dr. Barsnitz and his wife, Margaret, and Claudia all faced charges for filing a false charge of defamination of character and bodily harm. Udman was fined $380 while the Barsnick's couple, who maintained their innocence until the end, were ordered to pay $4,500. Chopper proved to be a very costly ghost. Following the their trial, Dr. Barsnick and his wife were so mentally and emotionally drained that they voluntarily admitted themselves to a mental institution. Claudia changed her name and disappeared into obscurity. This would seem to be the end of the story. However, one cannot help but ponder the numerous poltergeist cases that have been attributed to teenage boys or girls. Few seem bothered by the fact that there, this was never satisfactorily ex explained that why Dr. Barsnick, who was previously considered a, you know, a very sane, prominent, respectable mm -hmm. individual, would nearly ruin his business and make a public spectacle of himself merely for the sake of a pointless practical joke. It was indeed a foolish stunt, but why did Barshnitz involve the lawyers and the police? Moreover, if it was truly a hoax, why was young Claudia certainly missed out on a remarkable career as a ventriloquist? <laughs> so this reminds me of two things. The first of them is the Zaragoza Goblin. Do you remember that? It was like the goblin that they thought lived in like an old uh, oven 
or like up in the uh, oh, ventilation yes. shafts of these apartment buildings. Yeah. And it would just like talk shit to everybody who was cooking and stuff like that. It reminds me of that, but it also reminds me of a specific yokai, the Akamanto. So it's a toilet ghost. Most stories follow this general pattern. While you're out of school late in the evening, you have to use the restroom. and You finally find yourself in desperate need of a toilet. The closest restroom, however, is the one that's normally avoided by students. It's an older and less well-kept bathroom, separated from the rest of the school, and it's rumored to be haunted. But with no time to search for a different bathroom, because you know you gotta go and you've been prairie-dogging it for a while, you gotta find a restroom to do your business. But when you finish and reach for toilet paper, you find <gasps> there is none. A hand. And it tickles <laughs> your butthole. <laughs> yeah. A little slightly different, but yeah, apparently there's several different bathroom ghosts. You try to find the toilet paper and suddenly hear a strange voice. Do you want red paper or blue paper? The student, you, will answer red paper. And in that very moment, you'll be stabbed and sliced up so violently from the underneath that blood sprays everywhere like a hose, soaking your body and making it look as if you're wearing a bright red cloak. What the fuck? We, we, there's multiple colors of toilet paper? Yeah. Like, are we that lame in America that uh, we just have white toilet yeah, paper? Dude. Like, we can't have, like... <laughs> dude, that's, that's... I want some blue toilet paper. Yep. Like, let's jazz that shit up. Exactly, dude. Yeah. Well, sometime... My asshole deserves the best, <laughs> you know? You're lucky that's you get two-ply. <laughs> you got the distracted side swipe on my, you know, bougie ass. Yeah, right. I get it. It's thinking fine. about that stink star. Um, sometime later, <laughs> another student will find themselves in need of a toilet in a similar situation. Dad, they gotta go. And they know the rumors of the student that died in the bathroom, i.e. you, your body, your booty was just sliced and diced. But they don't care about the rumors of the death. They have to just take a dump. So they run as fast as they can, sure enough, to the same bathroom and plop down on the same toilet. Oftentimes, the fourth toilet is the one that this yokai likes to visit. And soon after dropping one, they'll hear, Do you want red paper or blue paper? And remembering the legend, the student turns around and says, Blue paper. Then all of a sudden, the student's blood is then sucked out of their body through their butthole, leaving them dead and blue in the face on the bathroom floor. Now, plenty of variations of this legend exist, each with different minor changes. The true identity of the Akamanto is one of these. Sometimes it's said to be a person hiding in the adjacent stall, perhaps a serial killer in some of the stories. Other times, it's a ghost who appears as a tall man, sickly, blue and white in the face. And in some cases, it's even blamed on a hairy yokai called the Kianade, who lives in the toilet and likes to stroke people's rear ends with its hand. In any case, this yokai is marked less violent. A hairy arm that chose to rise from the depths of the toilet to stroke a student's behind. But also, in some cases, instead of draining your blood through your b-hole, blue paper instead gets you two ghostly arms that stretch up from underneath the toilet and strangle you until your face turns blue. Are they at least going to give me a reach around first before they strangle me? Like, come on. Right. And sometimes answering red paper gets your skin flayed, 
so that it hangs off your back like a giant red cape, which is where the Akamanto gets its name, also known as the Red Cape. But still in other versions, instead of being killed, the student's skin will color change permanently to whatever color he chooses. Sometimes those who survive will tell the story to others that fall terribly ill and die shortly after, almost like your curse to walk around with red skin or blue skin with a kiss of death. Mm. Well, let's fucking get away from that. <laughs> a world away from Antarctica and the frozen north, a phantom township emerges in the sky above Muir Glacier in Alaska. This uh, ethereal city is a captivating sight, one of the most peculiar and enchanting spectacles to witness at top of the world. Amidst the chaos of its peculiar architectural forms, from clusters of glittering spires to gables, obelisks, monolith castles, it shimmers over the crystal clear waters of the 700 foot deep glacial bay. The beauty of this city is indescribable. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a well known mirage story circulated, told by Professor Richard Willoughby a gold seeker who traveled extensively in California, British Columbia, and the Alaska-Yukon region. Willoughby, originally from Missouri, had uh, fought against Native Americans and later participated in the uh, punitive raids into Mexico as a Texas cowboy. In 1958, he journeyed from California uh, California to British Columbia, recalling the military-like precision of their party's progress toward the Fraser River, which led to the Indian Wars in Washington Territory. Willoughby eventually mined for gold in various locations before reaching Alaska, where he has since been honored with a street, an island, and a creek named after him. Around 1885, Willoughby made a remarkable claim of uh, photographing a phantom city, which I'll send you that photo later so you can include that in the Mm -hmm. show notes, above the Muir Glacier in Alaska. While anthropologist Franz Boas has captured mirages during his trip to Baffin Island in 1884, Willoughby's 1885 account was of a much grander scale, a substantial uh, phanta mirage known as the Silent City, hovering over the ice fields which is now Glacier Bay. The Alaskan News on July 26, 1988, reported Willoughby's incredible discovery, stating that he obtained two excellent negatives of the city reflected on the glacier's glassy surface. The mirage appeared after the change of the moon in June as the sun set behind the Fairweather Range and the moon ascended in the east. Willoughby had learned of the city's appearance from the uh, local indigenous people and had witnessed it himself for several years. As news of the silent city spread across North America, Willoughby ca- uh, capitalized on its popular uh, popularity by selling copies of his famous photograph and offering guided tours to the glacier. By 1897, even popular science magazine had featured a comprehensive account of the phenomenon. An early tourist to Alaska, guided by Willoughby, embarked on a quest to witness the, this mysterious apparition. However, an interest grew. As interest grew, the scientific community began to question Willoughby's claims. The San Francisco uh, Call informed its readers on April 28, 1901, that a group of scientists would soon depart from Vancouver to study the silent city mirage. 
Over a dozen years had uh, passed since Willoughby's first proclaimed the silent city, and as, and as time went on, the tale expanded in size and detail. Many subsequent visitors also claimed to have witnessed this remarkable vision. For example, uh, colonists reported on February 7, 1901, that Mrs. C.S. Longstreet, a well-known writer and traveler, had visited Alaska in 1899 in hopes of catching a glimpse. She described her experience crossing the Lake Labrage, where a misty picture of an ancient city emerged from the mountains. Each object perfectly outlined the site was so vivid that there was no there was no doubt of its reality the allure of the silent city continued to attract a glowing number of tourists to alaska to even as late as 1928 a cruise ship and cruise ship passengers were still searching for the phantom city some speculate that it's glimpse of that it was a glimpse of a real city now submerged beneath the icy waters of the inlet Others believe it to be a mirage, perhaps a Bristol or the capital of an undiscovered civilization near the pole. However, this ghostly settlement is not the only one to be a witness in the far north. During the Cold War, when Americans, uh, American bases were constructed in Greenland to study Arctic warfare, soldiers from the scouring Dust Bowl of the Great Plains occasionally reported seeing a medium-sized Midwestern city on the white horizon. The level of detail was so precise that they could even identify individual buildings, including churches. Damn. On November 7th... Oh. You know, I should have put a little segue in here now. You know, we're moving on to, uh, from, you know, Mirage Cities to another UFO encounter. I don't think we've covered this (laughs) one. Uh, So... It's the very tail end of the episode. I don't blame you for getting sloppy. Yeah, I'm going to lay this one on you. On November 17, 1986, an alarming incident occurred in the skies over Alaska involving a Japanese airline Boeing 747 cargo plane on a flight from Paris to Tokyo. Captain Kinju Teranuke, the pilot, experienced a close encounter with a gigantic UFO. It was a dark night when Teranuke first noticed an unusual light as he flew over the northeastern part of the state at an altitude approximately 35,000 feet. The lights, located about 2,000 feet below him to the left, initially led him to believe that the, you know it was a military aircraft. However, these un- unidentified visitors seemed to maintain the same speed as his aircraft and eventually appeared directly in front of it. The objects ap- that appeared closer now revealed two pairs of glowing shapes, each consisting of around 120 rectangular lights arranged in rows. They seemed to be as close as 400 yards from the plane, with each pair slightly smaller than the 747 itself. Concerned about the situation, uh, Teruche and his crew contacted air traffic control in Anchorage to inquire if the object had been detected on radar. But it wasn't. However, the UFO appeared to interfere with the radio transmission between the plane and the ground, causing an increasing garbled communication. Shortly, shortly after the, the light arrays moved off to the left, Terranuche was able to discern a third UFO located approximately seven or eight miles away. This object appeared on the plane's instruments and was also detected by the ground radars. 
Slowly, it fell behind the craft, but the cr to the crew's alarm, they realized it had positioned itself directly behind them, tailing their plane. As it flew, the UFO was dimly illuminated by the reflection of the ground lights. To Terranuce, it appeared enormous, possibly as large as two aircraft carriers, and had a shape resembling that of the planet Saturn. The air crew became suddenly frightened and sought permission by, from the controllers for, to take evasive action. The request was granted, but despite all their attempts to shake off the giant object, it remains uh, steadfast behind them. Eventually, air traffic control detected another jet into the area to verify the sightings, and astonishingly, the massive UFO vanished, leaving behind only the moonlight. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, we've got one more story at the bottom, but honestly, it's a pretty big one if you want to deep dive it instead of sharing the synopsis. Um, I've got a partial write-up on this one. This is the one where uh, she points to her belly and points up, right? Yeah. Yeah, I started looking this one up, man. If you want, we can save this one for a full deep dive. Fuck it. Let's make that next episode. Boom shakalaka. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, episode 290, what are we on, 291, uh -huh. 292? 292 next time. Which which is it? Two, oh, 292, Intergalactic Child Support. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, man. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, dude, nice work on the heavy lifting on that. That is uh, good old school, classic pixelated paranormal, buddy. Yeah. I like it. Good stuff. Well, everybody, thanks again for joining us and watching along on the live streams. We appreciate all of you guys. Please give us a follow, subscribe on uh, YouTube, follow us on Facebook, the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. On Instagram, we are at PXL Paranormal. Check us out on Rumble. Check us out on Kick. Uh, we'll probably start doing some live streaming on Instagram here pretty quick, too. Uh, we don't use Twitter anymore. I thought about maybe making a Blue Sky account, but honestly, like... It's pretty hard to juggle all that shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. How we doing so far on YouTube, buddy? Were you still around that uh, 275 mark? Yeah. You know, last time uh, we were at 274, so we gained one. We're at uh, 275. Uh, eight followers on Rumble. But God, like, dude, you Rumble people. I know you're watching this shit because I'll go in a couple days later and check the stats, and it's like 500 people have watched this video. I don't see 500 subscribes. I don't see 500 <laughs> likes. Help your boys out, <laughs> you rumble people. Yep. Help your boys out. There you go. Man, on Instagram, we are so gosh darn close to hitting that thousand follower mark. Um, let's see where we're at right now as of this recording. 911 followers, dude. Uh, we've gained like Damn. 100 in almost a week and a half, so that's phenomenal tracking. Uh, really appreciate that love. If you guys could, if you're on uh, following us on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, please rate and review us. If you're on Spotify, drop us some stars there as well. On Amazon Music, of course, please rate us and review us there as well. We'd really appreciate that from everybody. And also, we're coming up on our 300th episode. So if you could shoot us your, your own personal paranormal story, you can shoot it over to our email. Uh, we are pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. You can also shoot us a voicemail at our Google Voice, 913-662-3144. But we've got a whole gaggle of content coming up for our 300th episode. We're super stoked about that. Already getting a handful of listener stories dropped into the inbox, so that's fantastic. That's all I got, Preston. What do you got, pal? And as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, 
if you want to grow the best damn beer that you can grow, I can tell you that uh, bee poop and honey is not going to get you there. <laughs> uh, you know, penguin feces, not going to get yeah, you there. Yep. You know what will get you there? Big Dobbs Beard Bomb. <laughs> and if you go over to BigDobbsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA, you're going to get yourself 20% off your order. You can pick yourself up scents like Bay Rum, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, Classic, and my all-time favorite, Sweet Tobacco. Get it all. Get it at Dobbs. Do you remember that time we had our first Decapalooza over here? Um, Shayla was in Arizona on a work trip, and you're like, hey, I made a beard balm or a beard wax, and you brought over like this beeswax. It smelled phenomenal. But I remember, like, we made such a mess in my microwave and spilled it all over the deck, <laughs> all over the grass around the deck. Yeah. And Shayla came back from a trip, and she's just like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good stuff. And that's, folks, is why you don't use bee poop for your beard ball. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you're in the Wichita area, stop by, see our friend Leslie and the rest of the gang over at CD Trade Post, Pawnee, and Seneca. And also, if you're in the mood for some great food, stop by and see our friends over at the paranormal-themed food truck Paranormal Egg Experience, or drop by their brick-and-mortar, the Paranormal.cafe. All right, that about does it. I've already killed off my uh, beverage, but I'm going to raise this empty glass and say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that pixelated paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.